So James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. I, I partly feel like not preaching this text at all, except it would disappoint you so much uh, this morning for a few reasons. The predominant reason is this. Besides two textual details where you really could have a long, protracted debate about what exactly James means, this section's just really clear. And so it's not like anything I say is going to be anything you don't already know just by reading the text. Now, just so you know, the one area is you could have a really, really fascinating debate about what precisely the nature of the perfect law that gives freedom is. Like, like what exactly does that mean? What exactly is the reference for that? I mean, that, 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 that's quite an academic debate in the literature about James you know, in the, at this section. But that by itself, engaging that debate without uh, particular restraints and parameters is actually, I think, in some ways, exactly the kind of thing James is warning against. There's one of the things that we do is we get very creative about studying the Bible just so we never actually have to do it. You know, as long as we can just, just keep working through, sort of just, just debating academically, then, then, then we never actually just have to do what it says. And so in that sense, that can actually, unless we're really trying to understand James, that can just be a dodge on its own. So this text, in a sense, is like, in terms of preaching, it's difficult precisely because it's not hard to understand. It's just really hard to do. And you don't need a sermon about that. You need to do it. You need to do what it says. Like, that's the message. Now, I would just stop there. Except I won't deal with the relentless jokes about pastors only working one day a week and then only for three minutes. So, uh, so I will keep going. I, I will say a little bit more. You know, but fundamentally, it does come down to this. This isn't rocket science. Understand the Bible and do it. Now, we could, we could talk at great length about how that, first of all, requires reading the Bible to, to, to get content into your mind and all of the rest. You know, so you need to read your Bible. Yes, yes, yes. But for most of us, probably at this point, the issue isn't biblical literacy. It, it's biblical action. It's actually implementing what the Word says. So, brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. That is, pay attention. Here's a special note from James being passed to you in class. Pay attention to it. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It's the first thing. This is interesting because that's going to actually line up very well with what he says about doing the Word. Why? Because you have to carefully listen, be very quick to listen, whether it's talking to a wise person or listening to God speak. So when, when James says, be quick to listen, you know, we sort of immediately assume it's, it's verbal conversation, and there's a sense in which that's, that's all very helpful. But when he gets to listening to the Word of God, doing the Word of God, you need to listen to what it says, listen to the voice of God, be quick to listen. 
Now, you could argue that James is sort of a, the genre of James is difficult. I mean, it's, it's an epistle, yes. It's kind of a sermon. Uh, it also works out into this almost quasi-category of New Testament wisdom literature. That says it's like Proverbs, or it draws on a lot of themes from Proverbs. One of which is, the fool is known by their many words. The fool is always talking. The fool can't listen. Now, this puts me in the awkward position of almost all of the time that I'm around you, I'm tasked with talking. So, it seems like I'm talking all the time. And I, and I, I, I grant that, that in, in your Sunday morning experience, that's, that's what you get. You, know, uh, you get a lot of me talking. Um, the reality is, actually by personality and also for a variety of other reasons, very reluctant to talk. Like Personal conversation is very difficult for me. Um, and, and I think that, that one of the things that hopefully occurs is when I talk, I tend to talk a lot in a defined period of time. I don't talk a lot outside of that defined period of time. And, and part of that is outside of that time, I'm trying to learn some things so that when I actually do talk, I have something worth saying. And I might not. I mean, I might be a failure in that regard, but that at least is the hope. The truth is, if all you're doing is sharing your opinion and talking all of the time, very little of what comes out of your mouth will be worth hearing. Quantity of talk is not the same thing as quality. And in our society, I think that there's a massive confusion about that. Quick to listen. Why? Because you don't know everything. Because you're very, very, even, even, even the smartest are very limited in what they actually know compared to all that there is to know. Even the wisest are very limited in the extent of their wisdom. We're all finite. We're all fallible. And actually today, uh, those who specialize in certain areas of knowledge tend to know an awful lot, but about a very, very narrow field. They know very, very little about all kinds of other things. And so, you know, so sometimes you get you're sort of impressed with world experts in certain domains, but they're precisely that. They're experts in narrow, tiny domains. And so we need to listen. And, and Proverbs is filled with exhortation. Listen to people. Listen to wisdom. Listen to others. Hear from their perspective. Listen from your teachers. Listen to the wise people. Listen to those who have more experience. Listen, listen, listen. It's the fool who's incessantly talking. Now, one of the things I must admit, which, which increasingly, this is probably, this is, this is a lack of moral virtue, I grant, so I'm not saying this is a good thing, but as time goes on, I start to find I, my patience gets a little bit less for people who broadcast their opinions but aren't capable of sort of actually listening and comprehending what someone else is saying. It seems to me that a lot of people who are the most dogmatic are actually the poorest when it comes to rational, critical thinking and analysis. So, so there's, there's, there's no real listening. That is, there's always a screening from, from fair points someone else might be making. It's not their conclusion, so they can't actually absorb it. So I'd want to say there's a difference between having the sound waves hit your ears and, and hearing the words and actually listening. Uh, Apparently, I mean, I can't remember where I read this. I, I've only read it once, and so I hope it's true. 
but I, I, can't, I can't really confirm it, is that there was a time in history when uh, in Greek philosophical debate, you'd have two people discussing something, and, and one person would articulate their position. The person who was responding to them could not articulate their own position until they could articulate the first person's position to that individual's satisfaction. I think there's an enormous amount of wisdom in that. Because I find there's a lot of times you can be talking to someone and you realize they literally don't understand my point. Like, they, they don't get it. They think they do, but, but they don't get it. And, and so, to, to actually be able to listen so well that you comprehend someone else's side as well as they do, that's important. Quick to listen, fast to listen, speedy to listen, slow to speak. Our tongue can very frequently run far faster than our brain. And so, quick response isn't always a virtue. Sometimes the best thing to do is actually stop and think. Catch your breath. Don't be in such a hurry to reply. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why slow to become angry? Well, for the very good reason that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, look, I grant you that there is a category of righteous indignation and righteous anger. So, we'll say, is, is anger always wrong? Well, Jesus was angry when He cleared the temple. It's true, true. What percentage of the time when you are angry is really righteous anger? I'm running around 85%, but I still have a little ways to go. I mean, honestly, when you get angry, are you more or less likely statistically to act righteously? So, should we get angry that there is sexual abuse in this world? Yes. Yes. In fact, I think if there isn't some fury about that reality, then you just don't understand But most of the time, we're not righteously angry. We're just in a bad mood. We're just annoyed, right? Our anger does not bring about the righteousness that God wants. It, it doesn't. We know this. In fact, it often brings up the opposite. Now, in context, one of the reasons that people are getting angry is that they're not really listening. They're just too quick to talk. So, it'll be faster to listen slower to speak, and don't confuse your annoyance with the justice and righteousness of your cause. Anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. So, take note of that. Therefore, as a result of this, if we want to be righteous, then there's things we need to get rid of. So, get rid of the moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent And what's the antidote to this? The antidote is to accept the word that's planted in you, the word that can save you. This is the word of God. So, be quick to listen to the word of God. Let it be planted in you. It can save you. Now, this isn't probably, in the first instance, actually referring to full salvation from sin, justification, and all of the rest, the way Paul's talking about soteriology in Romans 3, for example. This is probably more along the lines of If you want to be sort of saved in the sense of liberated from all this moral filth and garbage, then be quick to listen, 
Slow to speak and slow to become angry because anger isn't going to bring about righteousness. What will bring about righteousness is humbly listening to the Word of God. That's what will do it. Bickering and fighting and contending and arguing, that won't do it. Listening to the Word of God will. So let the Word of God be planted in you. It can save you. It can give you freedom. It can liberate you from these other things. So get rid of it. We're awash in an environment of moral filth and evil. That's just true. And, and that affects us. That affects all of us. And so what we need to do is we need to, we need to work sort of counterculturally, but also counterintuitively to our natural responses. This stinks, but it's true. The way we naturally respond, respond to things is usually wrong. That's awful, but it's true. Like, just the way we naturally think, the way we naturally try to, it's, it, the way we naturally interact, it's, it's not usually right. This is the disordering problem of sin is that we call up, down, and, and out, in, and we're just totally disordered. We're disordered in our affections. We're disordered in our priorities. We're disordered in our values. We're disordered in our analysis and our evaluations. And, and we're certainly disordered in our natural reactions. I think this is one of the reasons, actually, that for a lot of us, we actually need to learn to respond instead of react. Because the way we naturally react is usually intuitive to the old way. To respond is to catch your breath, listen, think, slow to speak, and to also recognize that sometimes you need to work things out. You just need to work it out. You might not know right away. It's okay but you keep trying to move forward, keep trying to grow, keep trying to do what's right, keep waiting for clarity and light. Humbly accept the word that's planted in you. Learn to respond according to the Spirit and the Word, not according to disordered natural emotions. Now, if we're actually going to do that, then you can't just listen to the Word or you'll be deceived. Here meaning shallow listening. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, this, this is not about anyone here. I promise you this, okay? There's a lady that I know it's not here, it has not come to this church, it's never been in this church, it's not living in Guelph. As far as I know, none of you know her, okay? This is not a coded way of talking about anyone. And, and I remember talking with her, and she's in her 80s, and um, she said, oh, you know, I just, I was just at the doctor, and I'm so discouraged, I don't like my doctor. Okay, Why? Well, I have all of these health problems. List them off. One of the things about 
elderly people sometimes they don't they don't mind you knowing everything that's wrong with them, uh, and so so they. <laughs> I can tell you a story, actually, my very first time visiting as an assistant pastor wearing my black suit, you know, in, in Lindsay you know, 20 years ago, visiting a senior and coming out scandalized <laughs> with my knowledge of, of her body and medications. You know, I just could not, could not believe, you know, the things, things I was being told. Um, but that prepared me for working with Pastor Sam, <laughs> let me tell you, for, it's you know, so listing off all this litany of problems. I said, oh, it's, oh, yeah, it's unpleasant. I said, then the worst thing is, you know, my doctor, th- he just tells me that, that if I lost weight, a lot of these problems would disappear. Then lose weight is what I was wise enough to think but not say, right? <laughs> like... You go to your doctor. Your doctor tells you, this is what you need to do. And you say, I don't like that person. That's what we do with the Bible. We go to God. He's our authority. We listen. She heard what her doctor said. But she didn't want to do it. Don't just listen. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, this is um, this is so different. I think I, think I would prefer this society, actually, uh, at this one point. One of the things that... I like about um, camping or being away. It's actually, when you come back into quote-unquote civilization and you see yourself in a mirror for the first time after a few days, you go, oh my goodness, I look horrendous. Like, like, but you didn't care because you didn't see what you looked like that whole time you were away. It's like sort of the shock value of, 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 of how disheveled and, and, and horrid things look. Uh, but you didn't know because you weren't constantly preening in a mirror. Mirrors are ubiquitous in our society. I mean, so, so people are seeing themselves in, their, in mirrors, I, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, at least dozens of times a day. Now, is that healthy? I don't know. In the ancient world, you didn't look at yourself in a mirror dozens of times a day. In fact, there's a very good chance you didn't own a mirror. And if you did, it was, it was probably a piece of bronze that, that was burnished. And so what you'd get is you'd get this, this reflection of sorts wasn't overly clear. And so to see yourself in a mirror was kind of like an event. And so it wouldn't be likely that you'd, you'd go away having forgotten what you had just seen. You just didn't see this all the time. So, so most people, if they ever saw themselves, it would be in the basis of, of either seeing their reflection in water, or very, very rarely, because most people can't afford the luxury of a bronze mirror. 
They, they didn't have glass. And they also, this is something else, of course, remember, even glass in the ancient world is nothing like glass today. They didn't have the refining techniques that we have. So James here is using something which is, which is, is sort of an event. You, you see yourself. You're not likely to, to have something like that and then walk away and immediately forget what you look like. That would just be bizarre. But if you look into the perfect law that gives freedom, right, if you continue in it, not forgetting what you have heard but doing it, you'll be blessed in what you do. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do it is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and goes away and forgets it. And, and, and this is, and, and just, just be, be honest about two things devotionally. One, do you do devotions? Do you actually read the Bible? And, and for many of us, if we were honest, we would say, uh, not, not as frequently as we would like. So that's the first thing. Do you, actually, do you actually read the Bible? Second thing is, how many times have you read the Bible for that day, closed the text, and literally do not remember what you just read? Like, immediately. Well, what was going on there? Well, you were reading it. The words were flowing through your brain and just as fast flowing out the other side. So, that's not intently looking into the, into the, the law. The, the word intently here is, is intentionally used. That is, it's not just a cursory, well, I read my chapter. It's focusing on it, meditating on it, learning it, not forgetting not just looking in the mirror and turning away and not even paying attention to what you saw. Not just reading the chapter and closing the book and, and not even having taken a word in really. It's about actually intently staring into the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, I, I, I suspect that this probably should be, should be taken along the lines of perfect law that gives freedom is, is likely God's law uh, as it's fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So, there's continuity here, in my judgment, with with Old Covenant Scriptures, but brought to a place of fulfillment through the life and teaching and actions of Jesus. So, so in a sense, then, this is, this is God's Word come to fulfillment, which it is through Jesus. Now, you stare deeply into the liberating power of the perfect law and Word of God as revealed and mediated through Jesus, and you will find freedom there if you do it. Not if you just read it and set it aside and go on your merry way doing whatever you want. Freedom comes through God's perfect law. Look at it intently. Don't forget it, but do it, and the promise is blessing. They will be blessed in what they do. In a proximate sense, that has to be true in this life. In an ultimate sense, it awaits eschatological fulfillment. It awaits the new heavens and new earth. Who is James writing to? We talked about this two weeks ago. What are these people experiencing? They're experiencing persecution. They've been scattered from their homes. James has the audacity to write to these people and say, if you just pay attention to the Word of God and do it, you'll be blessed in what you do. I say, James, these people have lost their homes. They've lost their loved ones. 
They've lost their employment. They've been beaten. They've been ridiculed. How are they blessed? In fact, listening to the Word of God has brought about those outcomes. Because they're only persecuted because they're listening to Jesus. If they would just compromise on that, they'd be fine. So these outcomes are precisely and only because of obedience to the law that gives freedom. Where's the freedom there? Where's the blessing there? And all it can mean is that blessing is not defined as a 10-bedroom mansion and a Lamborghini in the driveway. It's not defined as physical health. It's defined in terms of some kind of deep-rooted relationship with God that sustains you no matter what. The way we wish to define blessing naturally is a reaction from our old self, not a response to the truth of God's Word. We need to be quick to listen, even to understand how God defines blessing. Now, are there blessings, are there material blessings that attend to, to actually thoughtfully implementing a lot of principles in God's law? Actually, yes. Yes, actually, there often are. Is there often sort of general health and, and vitality physically and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually from attending to the principles of God's Word? Yes, yes. We've actually been designed to live this way. But the world around us is designed to thwart and to choke out living this way. And so blessing may not always look, or especially, I wish it was different. Blessing very often doesn't feel like how we want it to feel. It doesn't always look like what we, how we want it to look. But it's there quick to listen, slow to speak. Those who do not, cycling back to talking, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. The very first thing that every one of us likely wants to do when we read that is think of someone else who doesn't control their tongue very well or water it down. It doesn't mean what it says. Because my religion isn't worthless, thank you very much. And yes, I do have a problem with my tongue, but it can't mean that if I have a problem with my tongue, my religion is worthless. It can't mean that. Except, I don't know. This is one of those ones where it just kind of seems to mean what it says. If you consider yourself religious, but don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, you are deceived, and your religion is worthless. Like, that's not hard to interpret. There's no theological debate about what this means. Sometimes I can tell how much I don't line up well with the text on the basis of how much I really hope there's a theological debate about it. We can come down on different sides on this one, but at the end of the day, you can't. Not here. You think you're religious? You don't control your tongue? You're deceived. Your religion is no, of no value. So how are you doing being quick to listen and slow to speak? To be slow to speak requires reigning in your tongue. Today we might use the, the 
the language of biting your tongue until it bleeds. When's the last time your tongue has bled? When's the last time, honestly, where, where you have thought, don't say that, and you actually haven't said it, versus when you thought, don't say that, and two seconds later, you hear it coming out of your mouth? You know, when's the last time you, you controlled your vulgarity? When, when you didn't tell the off-color joke? Where, where you didn't, where you, where, you intend, where you chose not to be insulting. When you chose not even to score the point in the debate that you could, which would be a really good one, maybe turn the tide in your favor in the discussion. But you couldn't say it with maturity and grace, so you decided not to. When's the last time you chose golden silence instead of aggressiveness and winning at all costs? Can you control your tongue? Can you control the words that come out of your mouth? There is an old saying, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Anyone good at that? It's actually, there is some wisdom there. It's better not to say much a lot of the time. A tight rein on your tongue. So what is God looking for? This to me is interesting because there's, it's almost like speech has just been totally left behind. Religion that God our fathers accepts as pure and faultless is this. And then you almost think that in context he's going to be saying something about speaking wisely, dispensing gracious words of wisdom or or something, but he doesn't. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So two things. What is God looking for? Well, the negation's already been given. He's not looking for the foolish blabbermouth. He's looking for the person who controls their tongue. And he's looking for these other two things. He's looking for someone who actually cares about the vulnerable people in the world. And who, as a result, also keep themselves from being polluted by the world. So, care for the most vulnerable and keeping yourself as pure as you can from all the moral garbage and decay that characterizes the world. Now, that raises the question, who are the most vulnerable people today? These are the ones that we need to take care of. In James's day, for a variety of reasons, uh, no social structure, infrastructure, uh, you know, no, no income security, no orphanages. I mean, there's, there's a whole variety of things, no foster care system. There's a whole variety of reasons why, why widows and orphans, even women not having any marketable jobs in the first century economy, no, no way of earning money at all. You can see that how this is absolutely the most vulnerable group. 
In that sense, there is a direct application of this in a lot of countries in the world today. Uh, I, I've seen more than, more than a few orphanages in Africa. And, and one of the reasons that you still have orphanages as, as systems, as places, it's not ideal, but you get a place where you get a, a few hundred kids because there is no other place to put them. You know, in, in some African countries, through war, through HIV AIDS, we don't, we don't hear as much about it. It seems to me, maybe I'm just outside of all kinds of media, but I don't think we hear as much about HIV AIDS today as we used to a decade ago or 20 years ago. And, and, and yes, there's some, some antiviral retro drugs and all of the rest, but it's still, it's still a crisis in sub-Saharan Africa. I just, wonder, I just wonder why we don't hear about it as much. I've, I've been in AIDS hospices seeing people dying on mats on floors because of HIV AIDS and nowhere else to put them. And where are their kids? Where are their statistically four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten children? No, churches in those communities have a direct mandate. They have to do all they can to care for those people. And there's only so much they can do. They're, they're usually dirt poor as well. There's a, there's a lot of HIV AIDS in, in these churches too. And so, we try to care for those who are most vulnerable. A little while ago, before the summer, I mentioned that um, our staff had met with a family uh, who had relatives who are Eritrean uh, in, just outside of the Sudan, and they were looking for refugee, they had refugee status, they were looking for a sponsor group to help bring them here. And so, our staff had talked about that, uh, we had talked about it with the deacons board sort of informally, then brought it to, the, the, to a business meeting, and um, just discussed this, this possibility. Well, just in the time in, in the time it took when we were discussing with them, and, and I had told them, we'd there's, if there's something we can do, we'd like to help, but I can't guarantee that we can, right? Because, because we didn't know what the church would decide. So during that time, I'd also, they, they said, well, we, we, we might talk to other churches too. And I said, that's fine. Like, don't wait for us, particularly because the answer isn't certain. So we met with them, and they said, actually, you know, just, just before I told them that we, we wanted to to sponsor their, their family, but the week before, another church had told them that they would. So, if the goal was actually to see this family sponsored, then we should be very happy about that, right? That this family is, is being taken care of. Nonetheless, I must admit it was a bit of a blow to me because I wanted us to participate in this, and this is one of those, those things where you realize, you know, it, it would be awfully nice to think that we're just dispassionately trying to bring glory to God and help other people, but the reality is I often want to be sort of part of that story, you know. Now, is that wrong? It can be if it's ego gratification, but, I don't, but it can also be good if, if, it, if it's a recognition that, that we ought to want to be doing significant things for God in the world. Like, that, 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 I think that's good, provided our egos don't get bound up with it. So I guess part of the question that I would have as I'm working through this text is, okay, 
this family had approached us, and, and they had saved up a lot of money to help with the sponsorship and all the rest. Okay, well, well that family's taken care of. I do think there are other refugees in the world. And so, so is this something that as a church, we say, okay, it wasn't that particular family, but is this something we want to do? Is this a way of looking at James and saying, as we assess the global situation, recognizing too that, that we are in a different position where, where our neighbor and those we can take care of can literally be on the other side of the world in terms of compassion, sponsorship, children, or, or, you know, or whatever. But we can also bring people here. And, and so it's not just a matter of in James's day where you were really limited, it's just like a 10-kilometer radius of, of human interaction. It's we can actually do things to help other people in ways that James couldn't have imagined. Now, this text does not say, chapter 1, verse 27, footnote, in application, this means Crestwick Baptist Church ought to bring a refugee family over to Canada. It doesn't say that. But that is certainly one way of working out an application of this text and doing something. So I'm not imposing this. I'm not saying we ought to. But I'm saying I think that might be one type of actual real life doing of something rather than just hearing and listening to the Word and not doing what it says. And so, if it's not a refugee family, that's fine, but it better be something. Now, this also isn't merely just for the church corporate. It's also for you individually. That is, what are you doing to help people in the world? What are you doing to help the most vulnerable? Now, this might be also, it might not only be socioeconomically, although some of us could probably do a lot more to help people socioeconomically. It might be people who struggle with with different types of debilitating mental illnesses. It might be people who are just overwhelmed for a variety of reasons, you know, I, I, relationally. It might be people who have, who have real difficult physical maladies which, which keep them from functioning. They need help. I mean, there's people who need help. It's not just all about money and food. Sometimes it's also about compassion and, and emotional connection and love. It's funny how we, we tend to define love your neighbor by, like, by baking them a pie or doing something. Maybe you're supposed to love them. Like, feel something for them. Care. And so, I'm going to leave that with you. But I want you to be quick to listen, slow to speak. Think about it. As a church, do we want to go and find a family of refugees that we can bring over to Canada and for a year be their sponsors and, and pour time and, and love and care into their lives? And yes, unlike this other family, it would also, it would also actually cost us money. And, and, and certainly in this room, there isn't very much of that represented by all of our families collectively. So it wouldn't be much of a financial sacrifice at all if we did it together. Do we want to do this? And not, again, should we do it, but would you do it?
if we decided to do this, would you step forward? Would you give some time? Would you give some money? Would you give something to help this be done? I never, as you know, ever in my life, ever have application for a message. But this is the one time in seven and a half years where the text applies itself and I can't help it. So, if this is something you'd like to do, I want you to tell me. Sometime this week, send me an email, something. Let me know. And if we do, then we'll proceed. And if we don't, it must only because we have a better way of taking care of some people who are the most vulnerable in this world. And that's fine. But let's do something and not merely hear what the text says. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.